outside? Should I run and hide? How do I take my company worldwide? Do you love the law? Did you watch Hee Haw? What's the weirdest thing that you ever saw? What's it like in court? Favorite sport? Can you help with my book report? Is my hair too long? Am I right or wrong? And do you mind if I sing along to anything? Ask Alan anything in the world. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of uh, Ask Alan, the podcast. I'm Alan Crone, uh, the CEO of the Crone Law Firm. And uh, today uh, we have uh, a very special guest, Mary Beth Conley. Uh, many of you know Mary Beth. She's been uh, a fixture in Memphis media for quite some time. Good friend of mine. And uh, Mary Beth, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. I am a viewer, and uh, you've had far more notable people than me, so oh, I'm a little I, intimidated. Oh, no, no. I, I, it, you're classing up the joint. I really appreciate you coming <laughs> on and, and talking I about- I believe that's uh, the first time anybody's ever said that to me in any setting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you know, as, as we were talking about off, uh, off camera, uh, I always like to, to find out how uh, people got and got where they are. Um, are you are you a native Memphian? How did you come to Memphis? Um, I am a native New Mexican, actually. Um, and when I was eight, we moved to East Tennessee. My dad was a mining engineer. And fun fact, there is a small town outside Knoxville called Mascot, which at one time was the third largest zinc deposit in the globe, on the globe. So we moved there and uh, long story short, stayed there and I came here because uh, my now former husband got a job at the Commercial Appeal and I was working in Knoxville. We were going to get married. So obviously I needed to move. So that's how I ended up here, marriage. That's a, a, a common story. Uh, a lot of people end up uh, in Memphis because they either marry someone from Memphis or their spouse or significant other uh, gets a job in Memphis. Right, right. So that was 1985. And um, to be perfectly honest, we thought we would stay maybe a couple of years, um, but I fell in love with the people. Uh, East Tennessee, while technically in the South, was much more, um, the people were, I don't know if they still are, more standoffish, I guess. And I was kind of blown away by how warm and friendly everyone here was. So it's a great place to raise kids too, um, which, you know, we didn't really know. So, but you know, in the media, oftentimes people jump around quite a bit, spend a couple of years in a mid-sized market. But truthfully, I never wanted to be on TV in the first place. It was never a goal of mine. So I wasn't looking for the bigger market. Um, I just liked the work and I liked Memphis. So why not stay? So what were you doing in Knoxville before you moved to Memphis? Well, I was a consumer reporter and an anchor there. Um, I, I had been working at, at the CBS affiliate there for about two and a half years, but um, I did not start there to work in TV. I was actually an advertising major. I wanted to write for a living, but my focus was more on the creative side of writing. And I graduated in 1982 
and you, of course, far younger than I, don't remember the recession of 1982. Um, but no one in advertising was hiring. <laughs> so through a friend, I got a job as a sales secretary at the C and happened to be at the CBS affiliate there. And I was the worst sales secretary in the history of sales secretaries because I'm very disorganized and have really no interest, Alan, in becoming organized. And that's a problem. But I was friendly and I was fun and I tried my best and I owned up to my mistakes. And so they kept me around and um, then and they needed this program produced that no one wanted to produce in the entire building. It was a telethon uh, called a jobathon to match people who had jobs with people who needed jobs. And they were asking for volunteers to produce it. And nobody wanted to do that because secret for those not in television, nobody in television likes telethons. They're boring TV. I mean, they just are often for good causes, but from a television standpoint, they're not particularly creative. And I was so sick of being a sales secretary um, that I raised my hand. I knew nothing about television. I wasn't even much of a viewer to be perfectly honest. Um, but it worked. And uh, in fact, it was so successful that the night of the telephone was supposed to go for two hours. They extended it for four hours because people would not stop calling. And at the end of it, they wanted me to come out and kind of take a bow. The anchors wanted to show who had put this together. And I, w I ran and I hid in a janitor janitorial closet because I didn't want to be on TV. I adamantly did not want to be on. But here we are, <laughs> however many years later, and I'm on TV. I don't know. So then, anyway. So what was your first on-camera gig? <laughs> a show called, about three months after the telethon, I was unfortunately back to being a sales secretary after my brief break. And they wanted to do a half hour morning show that was all features, a feature show. And they called it very cleverly, good morning. So they asked me to produce it because I guess I was this magical producer all of a sudden and I agreed to do that. And so I was still, unfortunately, you know, Knoxville is a small market, particularly in this was 1982, 83. So I was still a sales secretary and I was producing this half hour morning show. And about three months into that, they asked, they said the, the male anchor of this show needed a co-host. And so they asked me to audition. And I told them, no, I wasn't going to audition. Um, but they said they needed, and this was so stupid that I believed this. I, this was how naive I was about television. But they said, well, we need a benchmark. So just do an audition. It'll just be fake. We need a benchmark so that we'll know what we're looking for. Why I believe that they didn't already know what they were looking for, I'm not sure, but I agreed to this. So I did an audition and then they, they basically forced me to do it uh, <laughs> because I, they liked the audition. So they said, well, the only way we'll let you stop being a sales secretary is if you'll be on air. So basically I'm on TV today because I, 
had to escape being a sales secretary. <laughs> so my first job was a was exactly what I do now, except it wasn't quite as news focused. It was a talk show. And then really? I became a consumer reporter. It, it you know it just shows you that you can you can plot and plan and scheme, um, and sometimes life just goes in a way you 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 don't expect. Yep, absolutely. And I will tell you, when I moved to Memphis, um, I, I can't. My my husband at the well, my fiance at the time, got the job here first, and I wasn't going to move until after our marriage. So when I came to visit him and a look at the stations, I was very clear. I just I liked Channel Three's look. I just uh, so I said, well, if Channel Three doesn't hire me, I guess I'll do something else. I. I really, I, I don't know. I just, they hired me. They agreed to wait four months before I was going to come, which is almost unheard of in television. I mean, I told the news director, sorry, I'm not getting married until the end of August. So I won't be here until September. And he held the job, which is just not done. But so I came here as a consumer reporter. Um, and, you know, I loved reporting. I really did. But in 1991, when I had my second child, I realized I liked being a mother better than I liked being a reporter uh, because I, could, I wasn't able to leave the reporting at the station. I really liked reporting. And it was more of an investigative reporting. And that takes a lot of brain space. So that's when I went just, uh, just to anchoring. And uh, what was... Do you have any memorable stories that you uh, that you broke while you were an investigative reporter? Uh, well, I had one. Um, I will. The company shall remain nameless. They're still in business. Uh, but it was a car dealer, a very large car dealer, and and uh, you know I will say that back then there were a, things were a lot looser. Um, but <laughs> I loved the story. I had someone who, who told me they had bought this vehicle used and uh, it broke down immediately. Well, the company wouldn't do anything about it. And, and the upshot of it was the company said that the, the owner of the car said, let's say this is a Ford, but it has a Buick engine. So what, obviously they replaced the engine. Well, the company said, no, 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 that's not true. So what we did was we went out to three random mechanics and shot them live, opening up the, to see if, if there could have been some mistake made. And um, the mechanics, the minute they opened up the engine, immediately identified the engine as indeed a Buick engine. So basically what's notable about that story is that Memphis had never had a consumer reporter before. And what's notable about it, I was in the job about three months and um, all of the car dealers in Memphis pulled their advertising from channel three in response to that story. So we lost about a quarter of a million dollars and station wasn't too happy about that but you know they they wanted to to be consumer advocates so we we dealt with it but anyway 
the company ended up being sued for fraud and had to pay triple damages to, as you know, from, uh, from the legal standpoint, because they were found guilty of actual out and out fraud, they had to pay triple what the guy wanted. So it would have been a whole lot better if they just owned up to it and handled it well. That's, that's true. That's, uh, that's true. Now let me, that brings up an interesting point, you know, um, you kind of paved the way for uh, a lot of reporting that's going on now in Memphis in terms of consumer advocacy and maybe investigative reporting by television stations. Um, how often do you think people get, um, I don't know, get satisfaction or you know get something done by going to a, a news outlet to do investigative reporting? Is that something that is infrequent or do you find that you're able to get results for people by just knocking on doors and asking questions with a camera behind you? Um, we had good luck with it. Uh, now we did lose some advertising, like I said, quite a bit of it in the first year. So, and kudos to channel three for sticking with it. Now that's not so common. And I, I suspect that in today's world where you know, if you have a problem as a consumer, you can go on social media and tag the company with your complaint and get all sorts of results. So I imagine today um, there is even more sensitivity to it on the part of the company. Back then, I mean, honestly, the problem, and, and I'll be honest, I got to the point where I loved the investigative work. But I was frustrated because the reality is television news is in the business of doing stories that, while yes, we want to help you, Alan Crone, with your individual problem, if your problem doesn't extrapolate to a larger audience or if there's not something that other viewers, the larger audience of viewers can learn from your problem, we're not going to do the story. Because our primary job is not to help you as a consumer advocate individually. It's to help the whole community, right? And that was my problem with it. Because I, there were so many people I couldn't help. Um, because unless it was going to be a story of wider value, I didn't have a staff. We didn't have a staff of consumer advocates. And so I got really frustrated with that aspect of it. Um, so to answer your question, while I think people can get results, does everyone know? And part of the reason they don't is because the TV station just doesn't have a staff to really handle the problem unless it's going to be a story, which I don't mean to make it sound like that's the only interest this television station has, but the interest should be and is to the larger audience, you know? Well, it's just like any other uh, public, maybe a public interest law firm or um, any other advocacy group like that. You um, you got to go where you can get your biggest bang for your buck. Um, right. And so if somebody has a maybe a, a problem that shows a systematic abuse, that would be fodder for an investigative report. But as you say, a one off where, you know, you just you a particular consumer had a particular problem or dispute that may not don't think that the 
the television station is going to pick up on that unless it's got broader appeal. Right. Or if it's even the same type of problem, right? Because, you know, like you say, unless it's a a systemic problem or um, it's a very different, unique problem. In that example I gave you of the story that, that I really liked, if somebody had called us the next week with a problem that was too similar, our job is to provide programming ultimately, right? So we yeah. wouldn't be able to do it. And I, I that really frustrated me. And uh, so that was one of the reasons I decided I would choose anchoring when I wanted to go part-time to be able well, to- This is somewhat of a non sequitur, although I think it, it kind of follows logically from, from that. You know, you talked about social media uh, being a, an outlet for that that wasn't available when you were doing that kind of reporting. Another thing that's a new phenomenon I'd be interested in your perspective on is uh, the ability of the ordinary citizen to shoot um, video of breaking news. How, how has have media outlets in your experience dealt with that um, over time? You know, the, the quality of video on an iPhone or an Android now, it's really good. Um, So I don't know what our official corporate policy is for a reporter in the field um, who gets video from an individual. Although I assume it's the same for me, um, in order to run any video or pictures on our show that someone else has shot, we need express permission, written permission, legal permission from that individual. Um, And we certainly will run it if it's of broadcast quality, which these days it is. So I think that's going to be um, a bigger thing as time goes on. In fact, to be perfectly honest, I've been kind of surprised, and I, I hope this doesn't happen, but as with anything, whether it's grocery stores going to self-checkouts to save the most expensive cost of doing business. I'm a little surprised that um, we haven't all become one-man bands in the TV business where a reporter shoots his or her own story literally on a high-quality iPhone or, or tablet, which admittedly would be far cheaper than a video camera. Mm-hmm. I hope it doesn't happen. It hasn't happened yet. Um, so maybe it won't. But that's where I would not be too surprised to see things going. Well, you know, I've, I've been honored many times uh, by reporters uh, asking me for my on-camera on opinion of things. And back in the days when uh, they would come to your office, come to my office, uh, they would always bring a photojournalist and you know that thought occurred to me, but I also think there is something to be said for having a professional uh, photographer um, that that knows how to frame a shot and uh, yes. can focus on that while the, the while the reporter focuses on the on the the verbal part of the story. And absolutely. And and so I, I hope that you know. That, that doesn't become lost because I agree with you, you know, on the surface of it, it looks like you could, you could cut your, uh, your, your manpower uh, cost in half that way. 
Right. But as you, you use the word photojournalist and the and the truth is they are journalists. They just tell the story visually. And I think there's also value from a creative standpoint to have two, two voices um, saying, what if we, you know, did the story this way? And 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 also there's always it's always better in any kind of journalism to have more than one perspective because we all have an individual frame of reference that we sort of spring from and so having two people on a story who can speak to the editorial part of it you know one may be more visual but he or she also has a perspective about have we covered this angle adequately too so i certainly hope that doesn't happen and my my gut tells me that it won't happen because um, of the value of that. And the fact that it hasn't already happened probably indicates it won't. But that would be the threat of the new media, if you will. Um, but yeah, certainly, I mean, if somebody is on, especially a breaking news situation and sends in video, I can't imagine why we wouldn't use it as long as it's broadcast quality. Because we can't always be everywhere immediately you know if there's a huge raging fire and it's in Fayette County and we're downtown what if it's tamped down a little bit by the time we get out there yeah the um, it, it's it's interesting that when I was with the city we uh, we spent a lot of time thinking about um, you know uh, cameras uh, uh, body-worn cameras for police officers and um, uh, kind of over time, it, it, it has become, I don't want to say it's, it's not important because it, it, it is, but so often there is collateral video uh, from, uh, from the public that, um, you know, kind of makes the body-worn uh, images kind of obsolete by the time the bureaucracy mm -hmm. can, can pump them out. Uh, certainly the George right. Floyd situation, uh, the the footage taken by the public was really the deciding factor there. If, it, it, if that had happened 10 years ago, um, it, we probably wouldn't have known about it. Right, right. So yeah, it definitely has value. It's just a question of how you use it, but that's with anything. It, it's gonna be interesting to see how, uh, as you say, how all of that plays out over time because um, we, we just consume our news. We consume everything differently than we did five years ago. At least it seems like mm -hmm. to me. Um, Who would have ever thought um, the commercial appeal building would be empty right now, right? I mean, if you look at the newspaper business. So I don't see how anyone in broadcast can look at that and not say there's going to be some drastic changes in our business. So Well, this weekend is a good... Uh, example of that uh be interested in your perspective on this you know i i i wasn't feeling well yesterday so i i instead of being outside in this beautiful weather I'm supposed to go play golf but I, I just didn't feel well so i stayed home and looking back on it i watched you know a football game on broadcast television essentially i watched the the tony awards on paramount plus plus broadcast television um and I had the opportunity to watch some other things streaming and I uh, watched the Tiger game, I think on ESPN plus. So um, I'm mixing and matching all sorts of different kinds of media 
you have, uh, this may not be a fair question to ask you, but you're in the business, I'll ask you. Where do you think we'll be five years from now in terms of where are we going to get all of this content? Is it still going to be this jumble or is it going to somehow uh, settle into streaming or uh, back to cable or broadcast? What do you think? You know, that's a great question. Um, if I were one of the big three networks, I'd be moving even faster into streaming than they are. I mean, they are starting to do that but I'd be moving a lot faster because I, and I just, I just, I don't really keep up with anything um, like in, in the new, in the business side of broadcast. I don't, I don't have time for that, nor am I on the business side. So, but just as a consumer, I will no longer watch um, a, a program that I have to tune in to at 7 p.m. on Wednesday night, you know, I want to, I want to binge. Uh, I want a, what do you call it? Appointment TV. Yeah. So, um, I know I have, you know, the smart TV and I get almost everything streamed and I can't watch live programming, live network programming in a streaming fashion. So I'm in essence tie, you know, you can't really get, uh, live programming by cutting the cable like the kids talk about. If you cut the cable, I mean, you can't get network programming live. Does that make sense? Yes. You, yes. you have to have an app for it. You have to pay for, you know, so you don't really save any money. Um, and I don't, I don't know where that part is going, but if I were one of the three networks, I would definitely be moving faster into streaming. I think that's where it's going. Yeah. It's interesting because, um, you know, back in the day, uh, you would say, well, I'm going to watch Cheers. That's on, you know, NBC. Now you're more than apt to say, well, I'm going to watch X. It's on Netflix or it's on Hulu or right. it's on Peacock. And uh, that is all kind of becoming synonymous with the network, the way folks of our uh, generation would think of networks. And right. um, at some point you would think that that there would be some cost compression because who has $10 a month or whatever to spend on 15 different streaming services. That's, that's right. It's more expensive than cable if you do that. And, and like I said, if you do, if you choose that Avenue, like let's say you have, they're 15 bucks a month typically, and you have four. Okay. So that's what, that's 60 bucks a month right there. And you still don't have live local news. You don't have live CBS or NBC news. You don't have CNN. You don't, you don't, not live. So you're not going to save any money if you also want that news and information component in a live fashion. You can only go online and watch, you know, previously recorded newscasts. So I don't know, maybe maybe people just take their news uh, consumption completely to the internet. I don't know. I don't know how the kids are doing it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't either. And um, like I say, it's just going to be very interesting because uh, radio, because of the car, I've always said if it wasn't for the car, radio would have shut down a long time ago, I think. Um and so how, yeah. how broadcast television 
you know, I mean, I, I guess one answer to that problem is you go buy uh, a set of rabbit ears and uh, actually take it off the air. Um, right, but you still wouldn't get national news from one of the networks, right? Well, you would if you had Channel I 3. Mean, well, yeah, you would from CBS, you'd, from one of the three networks, but you couldn't get CNN or, or uh, you know, you could get Fox because there's a Fox affiliate, but you couldn't get, you know, couldn't what? get the 24 hour stuff, yeah. Yeah, so I don't know. We'll see how it shakes out. Yeah. But I'm 62 years old, so I'll be a consumer of that rather than a, <laughs> uh, actively involved in it. I, I just turned 62. I just turned Social Security age. Oh, congratulations. BC Alternative. Hey, that's absolutely right. Well, you know, I say that all the time about, about my profession. I'm, you know, I'm just hoping to hold on until it changes. And, you know, hopefully I can get out before it changes too much. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, looking down the road at, at the future of, of dispute resolution or in legal compliance, which is what the practice of law, you know, uh, essentially is, um, you know, it, it, it's going to be five, 10 years from now, it's going to be so much different than what it is now. Um, I just hope I can hang on long enough to retire. Uh, keep your brain active. But we'll see. We'll see what happens. Um, now you, you've you know got what? a you've got a bunch of stuff going on. Um, you you know you're on. I know you're on in the mornings with uh, my buddy Alex Coleman, alive yep. at nine at on Channel Three, and then you do uh, you still doing your radio stuff? No, I let that go after after George Floyd's um, killing, actually, because uh, unfortunately the radio station was purchased by some folks um, who have a different frame of reference than I do. And, and their social media at that time um, talked only about the horrifying riots and not at all about the uh, situation that sparked the riots. And I just, I couldn't, um, I didn't want to be a part of that. So I, I resigned. So I miss radio. I loved the, um, I love the long conversations you and I had had several on there uh, because one, one thing that's always frustrated me about television is we think a minute 30 is an eternity and that drives me kind of crazy. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, you have to, you have to do what your heart says. So I considered doing a podcast, but um, you know, two daily deadlines, will kind of eat your brain cells. And I didn't have that many to start with, Alan. So I really needed to preserve <laughs> those that I had. So I gave up uh, radio. And now I'm embarking on a, a couple of different things that I'll let you know about. Hopefully pretty soon. I've always got something going on, an entrepreneurial endeavor or two. Well, there's lots of there's lots of opportunity out there. I mean, if if a uh, hack lawyer like me can have a podcast that's uh, <laughs> somewhat successful, you you would be able to to knock it out of the park. Um, but let's talk about live at nine. Then tell me, um, uh, is there? I know we're kind of coming out of the pandemic, or we're pivoting in the pandemic, or something. Um, how is that? How has it been doing that show? Uh, the last 18 months? 
Well, we some good and some bad, actually. Uh, more, most people would say more bad, uh, but there was one very good result of it, and that is that we did learn we could do things by Zoom. And while we prefer to be in person, um, but, you know, we just, we aren't yet because we're still in a surge. While we prefer to be in person, we, uh, I've asked my boss if even after we come out of the pandemic, can we keep the Zoom component? Because we now interview people all over the place, which is great because, you know, we interview a lot of authors um, who are, maybe coming in town, maybe not, but they have something of value to share. And we're able to do that via Zoom. We, you know, we interviewed a family member of a veteran who was lost on this mission that out of the Vietnam War that nobody had ever heard of. The, the, there were almost more than 100 people lost. The, the plane was on a secret mission and it just disappeared. And because the bodies were never found, those uh, veterans were never put on the Vietnam Memorial Wall. So when I found out about this, I was able to find a family member of one of them. And we were able to interview her, even though she was, um, you know, a thousand miles away. So that's something that is good that's come out of the pandemic. Probably what Live at Nine misses the most is the music. We're able to do our cooking segments um, live on location with one photographer, you know, masked and hygienized, is that a word, uh, sanitized. But music, we can't. Uh, we can't do it the way Live at Nine has always done it, which really showcases the musicians well. And we don't want to showcase musicians in a way that doesn't help them. So that's probably been the biggest challenge. Um, but other than that, you know, we've just kept, kept moving forward. I think I was the only employee for quite a while at Channel 3 who actually came into the station still. Everybody else was remote. But we weren't able to, to um, in a quality way, have have an anchor remote and a guest remote so Alex would do his you know part of the show from home via zoom I was in the studio and then I would interview guests via zoom we did that for probably gosh close to a year but other than that we've just rolled right on you know I've always I've worked at home since gosh forever my entire career in Live at Nine, I've booked the show from home. So that really wasn't a change. Well, that's, um, you know, I, I think going back uh, in, in studio is great, but I agree with you. As someone who makes appearances, uh, I enjoy being on set, uh, but I can think of a lot of times in the last year that if it, I wouldn't have been able to do it had I not been able to do it via Zoom. You know, because right. that extra... Uh, half hour on either side of going down there uh, just right. prevented me from doing it, but I could do it by Zoom. So I would imagine even going forward, there'll be uh, still a kind of a mixed mix, mix bag with that. Because uh, I have clients now that they could come into the office, but they'd rather, they'd rather do a, you know, a consult or a meeting yeah. via Zoom. So uh, I think that's with us from now going forward. It saves a tremendous amount of travel time. 
and for newsmakers, because the segments you're on generally are pretty short notice. And since you're a lawyer, you may have a, a you know, a client meeting or a court appearance for all, you know, you know, a deposition that you can't change. Well, we could, we could even have someone like you go to step outside on your iPhone, do a zoom or Android don't want to sell any particular brand, you know, and that's been a huge, huge benefit. Um, so we will definitely, even for local guests, we'll still keep doing that. Otherwise, and I'm sure you are as well. I'm just ready for this pandemic to be over. I think, uh, I think we all are. And, and, uh, I just, uh, I just pray we don't lose very many more people, uh, to this thing. And, uh, yeah, I think we all would like to get to a point where we don't have to wear masks. We don't have to social distance, um, and that sort of thing. Um, Absolutely. you know, talking about all of this and technology, it, it reminds me of a scene in one of the Star Trek movies, and I forget which one it is, but I think it's Admiral Kirk is on the bridge of the Enterprise, and he's given a tour of the, of the new Enterprise to a bunch of reporters, and, you know, they, they essentially have what I think is 2021 technology uh, they have cameras in like their glasses or they have kind of these little mini drones that are the, the, the cameras. And uh, I, I don't know what that means other than I think we really underestimate uh, where this technology is going because uh, that seems so futuristic not too terribly long ago. Uh, but now every, I think everything in that shot you could probably recreate uh, in 2021 um yeah and uh, your business and my business they they seem to be different in a lot of ways but uh technology is going to impact both of them tremendously over the next 15 years i think that's right and drones that's a good example uh we we use a drone at channel three quite frequently it just makes for a beautiful shot quite frankly so yeah and uh uh, we're, we're, I think we're lucky that the FAA uh, has kind of taken control of that. Um, otherwise, I think drones would be everywhere. Um, yeah. Because they're very cheap uh, to acquire and uh, they're very powerful. I mean, yep. being able to put a camera up, you know, 40, 50 feet in the air, that's a lot of power. Well, and since privacy laws are uh, a legal thing, that's another avenue where, you know what? Your business will be changing. You know, um, death taxes and the law uh, are all constants, <laughs> I guess. Uh, so, uh, well, Mary Beth, I appreciate your time. I'm looking at my watch here, and I think we're, we're just about out of time. Uh, always enjoy talking with you. Um, I am so glad uh, that... Uh, your uh, then fiance got a job in Memphis and that brought you here to Memphis because that certainly Thanks. has been, that certainly has been a great thing for Memphis and for me personally. Uh, I can't imagine not knowing you. Thank you very much. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you, Alan. It's good to see you. And I look forward to seeing you in person at some point when Absolutely. COVID is over. <laughs> and I want to thank everybody for watching. If you've enjoyed this, please uh, share us on social media, comment on it. Email it to people that you think might uh, enjoy it. And uh, Mary Beth is going to go back to reporting the news, and I'm going to go get some justice.
Thank you all very much.